Hello and welcome again to Lost in Science on your radio this half an hour where we are going to be talking about science. My name is Stu and on the show this week I'm going to be talking to Amanda Bauer who's a research astronomer from the Australian Astronomical Observatory about a Science Week event that she's involved in called Space Jam in Sydney. Manisha. Hi. Um, so today I'm going to be talking about a mysterious sickness that's plagued a town in Kazakhstan. Ooh. What happens? scary. Are they all falling, falling down? Oh, I'll tell you. Oh, okay. It's a mystery. It's a mystery that's... It's a medical mystery. Claire. <laughs> yeah. What um, do you have for us? I've got a very special heartwarming story today. Um, I like to call it the guardian dogs of the galaxy. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's all about um, guardian dogs um, saving the little creatures. Saving the little creatures. So, like, yeah. guardian, like, guardian angel guardian. Like, guardian angel oh. dogs. I'm, yeah. And any... they're also, yeah, they're, they're angel dogs. Oh. Yeah. I yeah. love dogs. Dog, Who doesn't dog like angels? dogs? Yeah. If you don't like dogs, tune out now. <laughs> uh, but we'll be back later on in the show with that story, along with all of the other wonderful stories. Go science. <laughs> Amanda Bauer is a research astronomer at the Australian Astronomical Observatory. First of all, Amanda, what does that mean? Where, where is the Australian Astronomical Observatory and what do they do? So our offices are located in Sydney. That's where we do a lot of our technology development and where our astronomers are. But we operate the largest optical and infrared telescope in Australia, which is a four-meter telescope called the Anglo-Australian Telescope. And it lives at Siding Spring Observatory, which is about seven hours northwest if you're driving from Sydney. Right. So it's way, way out of the city. Yeah. Well, by design. Yeah. Okay. So why, why does it need to be that far out of the city? For optical telescopes, you want to be as far away from city lights as you can be, and ideally you want to be as high up in altitude as you can be. So there, there aren't too many very high mountains in Australia, unfortunately, but we did find a pretty good peak in the Warren Bungles, and so the, the observatory lives up there. The 4-meter telescope, there's a 2.3-meter telescope, and there's, oh, there's about 18 little telescopes that live up on top of these peaks. But every single night, the telescope is being operated by some astronomer somewhere collecting data, and it's a relatively competitive process to get some time allocated to you and your research project on these telescopes. So do you have to actually put in proposals, say, you know, and, and, and tender for it? Absolutely. Twice wow. a year. Twice a year we have to come up with our plan and what we want to observe and the way we're going to observe it and why we need to observe it. And then a little committee sits down and reads through all the proposals that they receive from anywhere in the world. And they rank everybody and decide which ones are the best use of the telescope's time. Competitive astronomy. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so what, what, is your, what is your research uh, based around? What's, what's, what are you looking for? I study galaxies, so absolutely everything about them. I want to know how they formed, 
And then what happened once they formed? So why they form new stars? What happens when their supermassive black hole at their very center starts to get active? What happens when they crash into each other? And one of the interesting questions for me is why and how galaxies stop forming new stars. The biggest ones that we see are no longer forming new stars, or they're just forming a few, not very many. The challenge is when we build computer models, so we try to kind of build these simulate universes inside of your computer and see if what you simulate based on the physics you think you understand matches the universe that you observe through your telescope. The problem is that star formation is a very efficient process. So if there's any fuel around, it seems to be pretty easy to turn it into stars. And when we observe galaxies, we're more and more sensitive now to being able to observe that fuel that they form new stars from, and we're finding a lot of it out there. So it seems to be a little bit of a mystery what's keeping that fuel from condensing onto the galaxies and forming new stars. Luckily, we've got the new Square Kilometer Array telescope starting its uh, construction. It's going through its technological development now. And as soon as that thing gets built, it will be collecting so much data. It's about as much data during one night or day as is on the Internet right now. Every day. Wow. Yep. So not only is it the hardware we have to figure out, but also the software. How do you, how do you analyze that? How do you store it? How do you share it? Um, but that data will be looking at galaxies billions and billions of years ago and billions of light years away, and it will be able to detect this fuel, this hydrogen gas floating around these galaxies. So I'll finally be able to get an idea of how that fuel got into those galaxies. Now, the, um, the, the new array is not an optical telescope, though, is it? That's correct. It's a radio telescope. Right. Can you convert that data into some sort of picture so that we can look at it and go, you wow, can. that's amazing? Yeah, we absolutely do. It's, it's, um, we take, it's sort of like a big radio receiver. You tune your radio into a certain frequency, and you try to listen for that. And so you tune it, but then we can turn those radio waves into something visually appealing for astronomers. So, or for regular humans, actually. And for for non-astronomers who just like looking at nice pictures of the universe. You are going to be peering at the Space Jam at the Powerhouse Museum on Sunday, the 23rd of August. What's that all about? It's obviously part of Science Week, but what are you going to be presenting? What are you going to be talking about? Yeah, we've got a group of four astronomers from around Australia who all do research on different topics. And we'll all come together and give kind of a a flash summary of what our particular research is. So I'll tell people all about galaxies and what you can learn from optical light versus radio light and how it puts together a big theory of ultimately why our Milky Way looks like it looks and what's going to happen to it in the future. So the other three astronomers will be talking about uh, some theoretical stuff, probably some dark matter from Katie Mack, who's based at Melbourne University. Um, We have a radio astronomer there based in Sydney. Her name is Vanessa Moss. Um, And so we'll all give our little brief intros, and then we'll have a QA and a session where the audience gets to ask us pretty much anything they want. And this whole thing will be moderated by uh, ABC's Wendy Zuckerman, and I know she likes some rather controversial questions. I'm pretty excited to see what she's going to bring up as well. Well, it sounds like a whole lot of fun to me. Um, And if anyone is around Sydney on Sunday, the 23rd of August, 
that's from 2 to 3.30 p.m. at the Powerhouse Museum, which is in Ultimo. So if you would like to hear more about the galaxies uh, that make up the universe and what's going to happen to them in the future, hopefully they'll be around for a while. <laughs> uh, they'll be around a lot longer than the Earth will. <laughs> that's great. Sure. That's kind of depressing, but it's still great. Uh, at least <laughs> at least there'll be somewhere to go when the Earth toddles off. So uh, thanks, thanks for joining us, Amanda. Good luck with your work and good luck on the 23rd of August at the Powerhouse Museum. Oh, thank you very much. transport you to a small village in northern Kazakhstan. The town is called Kalachi. Kalachi is about 500 kilometers from the nation's capital Astana. It's to the west of Astana and it's only got a population of about 600 people. Over the past few weeks something bizarre has been happening in Kalachi. There's been an outbreak of unidentified sleeping sickness. So the first incident of this sickness was actually reported back in um, March of 2013. However, over the past couple months, more and more incidences have been reported and more than 120 people have reported falling asleep or unconscious just randomly. Now, 120 people, that's about a quarter of the town's entire population. The symptoms, they range from drowsiness and fatigue um, all the way to just days on end of sleeping. There's no specific age group that's targeted or more susceptible. Um, And the victims or the patients, they're all, they range all ages, um, kids to grandparents. Um, There was even a woman who said that her cat seemed to exhibit, yeah, her cat seemed to exhibit some similar symptoms. So it's uh, potentially a cross-species illness. Yeah, so it's, mm. it's which means which means it's probably not likely to be something contagious, like a pathogenic. Yeah, like an infection organism. No, and you, yeah, exactly right. And it's not it's not very specific. So if hmm, anyways, um, the, although although I've got to say, cats can sleep anywhere, <laughs> and it's it must be cat, really hard to tell if your cat's got sleeping sickness because they'll just like. He wasn't waking up Pass to, out. like, <laughs> treats and stuff and food and just... I oh, see, that's serious. Know, it is serious. If they, hear the, if they hear the tin... And they're the, not uh, coming running? Yeah. Yeah. And also, apparently, it was snoring, quite human-like snores. So, <laughs> the lady just had a noisy, um, drowsy cat. So, poor thing. Um, the One of the more bizarre things about this whole sleeping sickness thing is that um, people, even though they're unconscious and they're not aware of it, they are talking and moving around and having conversations with their family and going about their business. So some people are exhibiting symptoms similar to sleepwalking or sleep talking. There was even a woman who said that apparently she had called her family um, miles away and they... Um, had a great conversation, and she recalls none of it. So, 
it's a really um that's scary yeah it is mm. really scary um it's just a lot of people are saying that they feel as though time has just been erased from their memory and it's just it's it's terrifying to think about it they're groggy and drowsy and all of a sudden three days have passed um so for most people these symptoms don't seem to last very long but they it is pretty common for people to then sleep for days and yeah you can imagine how terrifying that would be that like your grandparent or your parent or your child just won't wake up so it's just been this really eerie bizarre um sickness that's taken over this town some of the locals have noticed that there are some factors that seem to um influence when the waves of the sleeping sickness come in um and one of the the characteristics is actually that it does come in waves particularly around the time when the ground is thawing so mm-hmm. um when spring is coming around and then um some locals have even said that with the change in wind direction they've noticed a um higher or lower incidence of the sleeping sickness so this is somewhere where the is the ground covered in snow all winter yeah, it's or pretty, it's yeah it's in um north northern ish um like central to northern asia if that wasn't enough apparently people have also experienced this a number of times so it's as if like they go in um or they experience the symptoms and even after they've been treated that doesn't mean that they won't experience it again so again mm-hmm. this is kind of playing into the fact that it may not be something um like an infection or something that mm. you can then fight off the interesting piece in this puzzle is that there is actually a defunct uranium mine very close to the town so this mine and so because this mine exists the area in, um and the town have been tested for things like high um heavy metal po- uh, pollution or radiation and high carbon monoxide um emissions And so that's what they're actually thinking may be playing a role in this sleeping sickness. Um essentially what carbon monoxide does is it reduces the amount of oxygen that your red blood cells can take up because it's it has a higher affinity to hemoglobin than the oxygen. So when it's present, when carbon monoxide is present, the hemoglobin um will be will be bound by the carbon monoxide in place of the oxygen. This carbon monoxide story it sounds really fitting. these people are displaying the sim- these symptoms and um we have a known source and it's all fine and dandy um typically carbon monoxide will be a byproduct of combustion but since the mine hasn't been used in about 25 years um it's it's still it's debatable whether or not the carbon monoxide is coming from the mine we did mention that um the thawing of the ground seemed to um bring about some of these waves of sleeping sickness so it could be that there's carbon monoxide or even other gases like carbon dioxide and methane that are um are in that frost that are then released all at once as the ground um defrosting but and have they done any testing on the ground or yeah so um they have done some really extensive testing and the government's actually put out all of these action plans and have been really been testing for heavy metals and different um pollution uh, pollutants and for uh radiation and things like that so there's been quite extensive um testing i'm not sure about like they found high levels of methane and carbon dioxide as well as carbon monoxide in the ground so yeah. that could be it um and then the other reason people are a little bit um weary of the carbon monoxide story is that in early days when they were doing um when they were running the blood cultures and doing the pathology tests 
they were finding that the patients didn't actually exhibit typical symptoms of carbon monoxide poisoning. So they didn't have the same um, same makeup in their in their blood as they would have had they been poisoned. So that's leading some people to be a bit weary of this idea. However, um, it is the government's official statement that the cause of the sickness is due to the increased level of carbon monoxide in the air. Um, since all of this has started, um, there have been they uh, there has been quite thorough medical examination. And um, people have been relocated and may be returning to the village at some point soon. Okay, so I was in Warrnambool on the southeast coast of Victoria on the weekend a couple of days ago. Um, and amazingly, it is an unexpected wildlife playground I over love there. It. Oh, it's amazing. There are um, like giant stingrays by the pier. Uh, there's a whale nursery at the beach. I saw whales. Yeah, and a lot of people cars. go down there to stop to, was, to watch the whales. It was and beautiful. See them yeah, spectacular. popping in every year. Yeah. Mm. And um, like many other parts of Victoria, um, there are, it's also home to fairy penguins. Aww. Just like, yeah, the peninsula, peninsula or um, even St Kilda, I think, has got some. Yeah, yeah there's some right on the end of the pier. Yeah. 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 Phillip Island. Yeah. Um, and in Warrnambool, these penguins live on an island in the middle of the bay. Um, being in the middle of the bay, uh, obviously this island's called Middle Island. Creative. Yeah, creative, yeah. huh? Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, now, Middle Island is pretty close to the shore. It's only about 50 metres away. Um, and once upon a time, um, a long, long time ago, it was completely surrounded by water. Still close, but um, isolated from humans and anything else. Uh, but like many waterways, the natural flow was changed. Um, sand, silt... Um, was moved around because a break wall was constructed really close by, as mm -hmm. is normally the case. Um, and over time, a beach developed between the mainland and Middle Island. Um, so this beach gave access to humans to Middle Island, um, but also access to foxes and cats 
as well. So Middle Island, this penguin paradise, um, then became sort of joint house of foxes and cats. Lovely. That then made a meal of the penguins. Poor penguins. Yeah, yeah. So as you can imagine, the population of fairy penguins went into a sharp decline. Lots of penguins were killed in a really short space of time. And I read some reports that in a, in a one-week period, they'd have like almost 200 penguins being found killed by foxes and, and, and dogs and that sort of thing. It seems oh like gosh. crazy numbers of penguins being killed. Um, and after years of trying to manage these foxes with the sorts of things that um, um, like baiting, you know, 1080 baiting or trapping, um, the land managers and the scientists still couldn't protect the penguin population. So it wasn't putting a dent in the, um, in the fox population, this sort of baiting or, or trapping. And it got so bad that in 2005, scientists reported that there were only 10 fairy penguins during that mating season. So, yeah, the population was just pretty much decimated. Um, but this is where things got very interesting. Um, a local free-range poultry farmer is named... Alan Swampy Marsh. So Swampy came up with a great idea. Um, he had been using these Marema dogs. Now, Marema's a breed of dogs. Um, as guardians for his chickens. And they did a really good job of protecting his flock from um, foxes and cats and wild dogs. So he went to the council with this idea that maybe if the chickens... Um, were protected by the guardian Marema dogs, then the penguins could be um, protected by the guardian Marema dogs. So <laughs> this cute is cute as the story? Because, because pretty much um, uh, penguins are pretty much just chickens, swimming chickens in dinner suits. But so how does, how does this work? How do they get the dogs to look after the penguins? Well, I'll give you a bit of a background on the Marema dog because yeah. it's a very special dog. Um, if you haven't seen one, just imagine a super fluffy sort of big white Labrador or a golden retriever, but a little bit bigger. Just like beautiful, adorable face, really nice temperament. <laughs> but they are, um, they, they stay true to their roots and they have, they are an Australian, I'm oh, sorry, an Italian breed. Um, and they're specifically bred to help protect domestic animals. So they have a very strong instinct to bond with um, a particular territory and um, the animals in it. And they see other animals, livestock or wildlife, as, this, as the case may be, um, as companions. And then they chase off anything that is perceived to be a risk or um, unusual within that territory. Hmm. One swampy came up with this idea. The council launched the Middle Island Marema Project. And that began in 2006. The dogs are trained from little young pups, trained with the animal that they are protecting, so okay. with the penguins. Um, and they were placed on Middle Island um, to protect the penguins during the mating season so oh. that they could go about their business without being disrupted. So they sort of like imprint them from a very young age yeah. to think that penguins are their buddies. That's yeah. it. And they want to hang wondering. out with the penguins. That's it, yeah. And be their friend. Yeah, yeah. And get invited to their fancy dinner parties. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and they can be their dog butlers. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Um, and what's even more amazing is since the project started 10 years ago, uh, there's been no evidence of fox attacks. 
Oh, lovely. So yeah. they've scared all the foxes off the island. They've scared all the foxes off the island. Wow. Um, and the numbers of penguins are bouncing back from – so from 10 in 2005 to over 200 now. Wow, that's lovely. Yeah, yeah, but- which is fantastic. Um, and there are two Maremmas that are superstars of this program. So two sisters, um, Yudi and Tula, um, and they spend five days a week on the island and then they have two days of R&R off the island. Of course. Yep, yep. Um, now, one indication of the success of the program is obviously the penguin population bounce back. Um, but another measure of success is that there's a movie being made about this Middle Island Marema program. Wow. Yeah, it's called Oddball. Yeah. Oddball. Uh, apparently it's coming out this year. I don't know. But, that I mean, that sounds pretty successful to me. I am a sucker for a dog movie, let me tell you. It's not just a dog movie. It's a dog and wildlife movie. That's even better. Oh, that's even better. Yeah. Um, and, look, I can hear everyone thinking... If it's such a successful way of protecting vulnerable species against invasive predators, every endangered species should have a Marema guardian. You, you're thinking that, right? Every species in the every galaxy? Every species in the galaxy should have a guardian, <laughs> a Marema dog guardian. Um, and I agree. And so does Melbourne Zoo. Um, so much so that they've taken the idea of these guardian dogs and are applying it to help the Eastern Barred Bandicoot. Oh, cool. Yeah. So um, this Eastern Barred Bandicoot, um, it's a species that was considered extinct until they found a tiny population of of 50 or so um, in a tip in regional Victoria, like Lovely. at a rubbish Lovely. tip. Um now the zoos, the zoos brought the species back from extinction. They have a, quite a large population of over 600, um, but, and they want to re-release them into the wild. But they don't want to re-release them if there's still these predators around. Um, so right now they are, they're intensively training the maremmas and socialising them with the bandicoots. And so when the time comes, um, they can release the uh, eastern barred bandicoots into an area of about 50 hectares with a couple of the maremmas. Um, and the bandicoots can um, have a fully wild existence, um, but also be protected in by the guardian dogs. Anyway, if this all goes well, they, there are plans to create what's called a fighting extinction dog squad, or for short, <laughs> feds. The nice. feds, yeah. Nice. Yep. So, I mean, they, they will just be the most adorable feds ever, won't they? That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting 
Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook. Uh, and if that's not enough Lost in Science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get Lost, lost in, in Science! science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.